Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Boz Podcast. My name is Shabad Singh, your host. Today, we have a really informative episode with Amandeep Singh Madra about Jallianwala Bagh, its history, and its recent renovation by the Modi government. Before we get into that, I just want to remind you that the Boz Podcast joins you every other Tuesday. We interview uh, reporters for Boz, uh, thinkers, uh, historians, etc., um, to learn about issues affecting the Punjabi and Sikh diaspora, uh, as well as what's going on uh, in Punjab and in India. Uh, we do hope that you also subscribe to Boz itself. Uh, Boz News is uh, a very unique uh, platform that gives us a voice uh, from our own community uh, and uh, I believe makes a different narrative than the news that is reported about us rather than by us. Uh, so without further ado, please go ahead and listen to the show. I hope you enjoy it. Amandeep Singh Madra, welcome to the Boz podcast. Well, Shabad, thank you very much for the invitation this morning. So um, we're here today to talk about uh, the recent uh, memorialization of uh, Jallianwala Bagh um, that that has been done in a, a less than uh, a less than desirable way by the the Modi government. Um, but before we do that, I'd love to talk a bit about uh, the about the place and its history and significance. Um, so maybe we can start with uh, what is Jallianwala Bagh, um, and uh, what do we know about it um, before the the now uh, infamous. Uh, massacre in 1919. Yeah, uh, thanks very much, Shabbat. And I think that's a really good opening question because it's, you know, we have to understand the context within which that space exists. And of course, it sits right in the centre of the old, the ancient city of Amritsar. Um, Interestingly, Shabbat, I was just, I just realised that the very first time we met in person was in was in Amritsar, and I always think of you yep. as being Amritsari because you're so you're so um, you're so familiar with uh, with that city and the and the gullies and the um, the sort of like lovely higgledy piggledy nature of the centre of the absolutely most medieval city. So Amritsar as a as a city sits on the the Grand Trunk Road. It it's a in its oldest sense is a, a kind of a kidney shape, roughly kidney shaped. Um, uh, city. It was founded, as all Sikhs know, um, by the fourth Sikh Guru, Guru Ram Das, who um, was drawn to that place because of its ancient uh, uh, tales of, of it being a, a sort of historically spiritual place. Uh, and, and there dug the tank that we now know as uh, the Amrit Sarovar, um, and interestingly, the old name for for Amrit so is actually Jak Guru, the city of city of the Guru, or the or Guru Ram Daspur, Ram Daspur. Mm. So the city itself has these kind of r- spiritual antecedents. 
um, over time, because of its position on the Grand Trunk Road, because of its uh, simultaneous uh, place on the on the Silk Route, it becomes a very important trading city. So by the time that the Mughals and then the later Mughals and then the Sikhs are uh, in that part of Punjab and, and hold power in that part of Punjab, Amritsar is a really important trading city. Uh, it's a place of manufacturers, largely textile manufacture, and it's trading raw materials that are coming in from the east, but also coming in from the hills. Um, it's manufacturing them into carpets and, and textiles and then trading them uh, with people that are taking them further out west. So a really important, rich place. And as part of it, to protect that wealth, walls were built around the city. It's a very normal thing to do in right. pre-modern India. So this was a walled city with gates around it and inside that those walls the the gates of which were were shut every evening to keep out undesirables inside there is this teeming um society this teeming kind of trading culture that's mm. going on right at the heart of which is the darbar sahib mm. itself and a few steps from the darbar sahib is this is this place called Jallianwala Bag, and really, quite honestly, uh, almost anonymous um, through its history prior to the events of 1919. Okay. Now, the name implies it's a garden, and at some point it probably was a garden owned by the Jalla family, Jallianwala Bag, mm-hmm. garden of those. But it really doesn't, doesn't um, elicit any great uh, historic note um, through, throughout most of its its history, um, it certainly was very protected, and you can see those you know those wonderful old photographs that we're all quite familiar of of of, of Amritsar from high up, usually taken from um, Baba Atal Burj, and you can just about see uh, the Jallianwala Bagh. This is pre nineteen nineteen. And it's definitely protected, whereas all the way around it, there are these um, these these alleyways and houses and markets and uh, this teeming life. So it's, mm. it's always protected for some uh, for some reason, no doubt, because actually it was one of the very few quote unquote green spaces uh, in the city. No doubt, because if it does feature in any any historical record is because it it's the gathering point for people for political discussion social discussion um and all cities need all cities need that mm. and so that that uh significance as a space for gathering uh, of course plays heavily into the uh the massacre of 1919 um Let's maybe move move forward in history uh, up and up to that time, uh, and, and set the ground a bit for the you know why that massacre takes place. I know it's a it's a it's a I mean there's literally entire books written about it, um, 
But what, uh, what happens in 1919 um, and why, why do the British uh, end up opening fire on, on unarmed civilians uh, in that garden, in that park? Yeah, thanks, Robert. Again, again, really critical to kind of to understand that. And the whole incident is surrounded by, I always think Jallianwala Bagh is, and the story of the massacre is kind of surrounded by all kinds of myths, you know, myths mm. of numbers, myths about what happened exactly, myths about um, the well, amongst other things. So uh, it's a really lovely opportunity to be able to tell tell the story, and I'll try to do that fairly quickly. Um in many respects, the First World War is a is the kind of an important precursor. India throws itself fully into supporting Britain during the First World War, and as a result, the government of India, uh, with the support of opposition parties, uh, institutes lots of civil and political constraints on people, hmm. as well, of course, are providing a million and a half men, many hundreds of millions of pounds in uh, money and materials as well. So India is very much constrained by the First World War as it comes out of the First World War in 1918. So the people of India, and I I do mean India, not just Punjab, um, really did look at the end of the war as a moment when lots of those restrictions would be lifted mm. and actually what they found were uh, was a period of time where you had um a very high commodity prices grain prices uh prices for fuel etc because of the war mm. the spanish flu absolutely ripped through uh india I mean, just as a remarkable aside in punjab something like 200 times as many people were killed or died because of the Spanish flu epidemic of late 18, early 19, uh, than were killed in the First World War. Mm. Uh, they, they were killed from Punjab in the First World War. So wow. uh, it, just a country and a place devastated by disease as well as um, poverty. And then you've had, you have these political constraints which everyone was looking forward to being lifted but actually mm. the British government um, or the government of India should I say sorry uh, decided actually would really like to extend these a little bit longer <laughs> we don't like in these in these times when everyone's yeah. feeling feeling particularly kind of fervent about um, nationalism we don't want particularly lots of men with guns coming back from war and right. uh, for all of those restrictions to be uh, to be lifted so that's called the Rowlett Acts. These these are the famous Rowlett mm. Acts that inspired a national, nationwide protest. Um, and I do, and not just Punjab, throughout mm-hmm. throughout throughout India. Um, interestingly, General Dyer, who's the the figure that we will come to very shortly, yeah, was caught up in some of that rioting in Delhi, not in Punjab, but in Delhi. I see. And he would have, in the days prior or the month prior to the actual massacre itself, he was his car was surrounded by these rioters, and he must have noted, he must have known at that time, and he must have been acutely aware of the situation of 
frankly, the white British ruling elite in India, they were outnumbered a thousand to one. Mm. You know, no, no, let's not forget the numbers here. The British ruled not by um, not by numbers in India. Right. Right. It ruled through military power, the Indian yeah. army. It ruled through um, lots of local collaborators, the princes, all the way down to uh, administrators. Uh, it ruled through. Let's let's be fair. Some fair governance. Mm. Um, but it was massively outnumbered. Uh, and when the riots happened in 1919, a man like General Diem would be acutely aware of how the numbers were stacked mm-hmm. uh, against them. And of course, you know, that's happened before in history as well. So there are these riots that are taking place. There are, sorry, there are these protests that are taking place um, Equally in Amritsar, a very important city in the Punjab, you know, just the first major city outside of Lahore, the historic capital. There were also protests led by two very popular local bookish leaders. Um, And uh, these were protests that were then attempted to be quashed by local government in Amritsar by arresting and exiling those two men. Mm. And, and that then takes the almost takes the cork out of the out of the bottle because yes, they were leading the protest, but they were also keeping a lid on any violence. And the result of this very heavy-handed policing of trying to you know, take the head off the snake, as as, Brit, as the Brits were were um, fond of saying. Um, actually, what it did was it unleashed rioting throughout throughout the city in the days, just in the days before um, the actual massacre mm. itself. So you know Amritsar really well, and you'll know. Do you know the area, Civil Lines area, which is just north of the the um, uh, the railway station and the railway lines? Yes, yeah. So you know that. So I don't know what it's like today because I actually haven't been. Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I I haven't been there in so long, but I I'm familiar with the name, and I'm sure I've been there. But yeah, I don't know what the modern day look is. Yeah, and it's a, in, in 1919 that was where all the white people stayed. Okay, <laughs> okay. These very separated lives, a different, a completely different life to the the people in the old city, and they lived north of the. Um, the railway line which sort of bifurcated bifurcates the city um, and the rioting was really as the Indians kind of pushed through and tried to enter the civil lines mm. to, to make their protests they were put down in in these running battles with police there are white people who are um, attacked on Hall Bazaar as mm. you will know it so Hall Bazaar as it was known at the time and they're attacked and they're killed. Probably the the one incident that gets that got the most attention was a a lady called Miss Sherwood, who was a school teacher, who was riding through the old city, riding through the gullies of the old city, and she's pulled down by riot, rioters off of her bike and um, beaten up, uh, not killed but beaten up, and she's rescued actually by by locals. And that, that was seen as crossing the line. That that was the 
that incident of itself, and, and many people will be familiar with this photograph of Indians crawling along the yes. street with policemen with bayonets pointed at their backs. That was that is the spot where Miss Sherwood was attacked during those mm. riots prior to the massacre. And that was the punish, punishment that was meted out in the days after uh, the massacre, because that was seen as such an egregious, uh, such an egregious act that the Indians had completely crossed the line mm-hmm. by attacking a white woman, of all things. <laughs> so, um, in the in the in the days just before Vasaki, this writing had taken place. People had been killed. White people had been killed. Miss Sherwood had been attacked. Uh, the white Brits retreat to Gobindgar Fort, mm. just on the outskirts of the the old city, to lick their wounds. To and and can you imagine the terror that they must feel again? Yeah, right. Numbered a thousand to one. Memories of of Indian mutiny, uh, which was only seventy years earlier. And Indian right. mutiny was the the moment in eighteen fifty seven when. Britain very, very is very, very close to being um, thrown out uh, of India. It was East India Company, actually. Um, and who's going to come to their rescue? Well, it's it's General Dyer, who's sitting in Jalandhar, not even sitting in Amritsar, has no place, has no business in <laughs> Amritsar whatsoever. Mm. He's in Jalandhar, he hears the news, he jumps on a train, he has no orders to do so. Uh, he jumps on a train and he goes up to Amritsar in order to take control of the situation. And to understand what happens next, you kind of have to understand the man. He's, uh, uh, the Americans like to say that he's got to stick up his ass. He's a, mm-hmm. he's, he's a stickler. He likes to issue orders. He likes those to be followed. He's, um, he's old fashioned. He's a First World War veteran. He's used to firing first, asking questions later. Interestingly, when he's facing the Hunter Commission, which is the the commission that's looking into what happened after the massacre, and is very critical, of course, of him, he refuses to take any kind of uh, legal representation, and he defends Mm. himself. I mean, that tells you everything about that. Yeah, right. He goes up to Amritsar to take charge, um, and he does it with a very, very heavy hand on the morning of Amritsar, which is the next day. On the morning of, sorry, Vasaki, the next day, he marches into Amritsar, a city he's never been in, never, ever visited. Mm. And he issues proclamations to say that there's to be no more gatherings. There are to be, there's a sort of citywide curfew. Uh, Hardly anyone saw or paid attention to this column of, of men mm-hmm. that, that came into the city, but he he did it nonetheless. Um, but of course, for Saki's an important day, as we all as we all well know. And and despite there being, there, I mean, there were curfews in the city, and there were curfews around Punjab. In any case, and um, a lot of the millas and fairs that were planned had been cancelled. In any case, but despite that. Uh, Amrita was going to be a busy place on Vasaki. Yeah, and and sh- and so and surely it was. It was it was busy, and a a meeting had been pr- uh, arranged. A, a very bookish 
meeting of of political leaders who were going to who were going to protest and sorry make speeches about the arrest of the political leaders about the Rowla Act. Um, and so that commenced in the in the late afternoon at Jallianwala Bagh, which is, as we said a few minutes ago, that really important and probably the only uh, kind of gathering place for the old for the old city. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, while no pictures of that gathering exist, there's a lot of eyewitness testimony, and it ranges from people. Really, frankly, just incidental to the whole thing. They they right. just they've been to the Darbar Sahib in the morning, and they go to Jallianwalabag in the afternoon because that's what they do. Right. Um, all the way to people that were there at the you know craning their necks and listening to the speeches going on in the far end of the Bagh. The Bagh is a big place. Um, mm-hmm. It's and the estimates even by the hunter commission who were not in the business of over exaggeration they estimate some 20,000 people had wow. had gathered there so of course that doesn't you know that won't escape the attention of of um of the local police and messages are sent to Daya who's up in Rambar gardens again in the north of north of the city mm-hmm. it's, all there to this day, Company Barg, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah, a lot of years, isn't it? Um, and he's fu- he's absolutely furious. He had issued an order. He had issued a very clear order. There are to be no gatherings. So he's absolutely furious. So he gathers um, some men from uh, some Indian uh, soldiers from three regiments, Gurkhas. Uh, Baluchis and a Sikh regiment. That doesn't necessarily mean that they were Sikh, but mm. from a Sikh regiment. And with two armoured cars and makes his way to Jallianwala Bagh, a place he had literally never been to mm. before in his life. Uh, but a, a local guide took him through through the streets, um, through those winding little narrow streets and they arrived at the entrance of the Bagh. Now, the the physicality of the Jallianwala Bagh is one that it's a, it's a large space, but there are only two or three entrances, all of which are very narrow because the mm-hmm. the the very high walled city comes right right up to the edges mm-hmm. of it. The main entrance is a very narrow um, a very narrow entrance, basically between two two buildings mercifully he couldn't get his armored cars through that narrow entrance but obviously his men could get through he arranged them on a high bank of ground right at the entrance um in a straight line and he ordered them to take fire take aim sorry right in the the thickest part of the crowd and literally without warning um mm. all accounts uh without warning without noise they opened fire reloaded fired again reloaded fired again they were they were ordered to continue firing despite the carnage that was evidently taking place mm. uh in front of them 
the crowd is not far away. I mean, the crowd obviously um, made every effort to escape. The main entrance was blocked. The other entrances, as Dyer stood um, watching, were obviously packed with people trying to leave, and he ordered his men to fire at those yeah. exits, one of which was was locked. Yeah. He ordered his men to fire into the trees where um, people were trying to take some shelter. Again, the 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 bog, and you can see images in in our book or some of those archival images. You'll see is a barren, absolutely barren place. There's a yeah. small structure, a samad, in there, and there's a few trees. So where there was shelter he was ordering men his men to fire there it's it was it's a killing it's an absolute killing field yeah um and they continue and continue until almost their ammunition is exhausted mm. and he didn't stop out of mercy he stopped because he needed to maintain some ammunition in order to fight his way out of the city if it came to it mm. so this was an act of Brutality, it's absolute brutality, absolute wickedness. Um, he tries to, he, I mean, the Hunter Commission, he tries to explain himself, but it's inexplicable. It's absolutely inexplicable, even in the context of British rule in India. Mm. Uh, why, you know, why, what the logic was for this. Um, and why the such extreme violence was visited upon these absolutely clearly unarmed, clearly, mm -hmm. clearly um, unthreatening people, evidently unthreatening people. That that is that is the the basic structure of the of the story of the massacre uh, that leads to the deaths of many hundreds of people. And so this this becomes a. I'm very, I mean, it's it's an unavoidably shocking and important uh, moment in the Indian independence struggle. Uh, what's the sort of, what's the outcome or the, the kind of, the, the, yeah, the backlash or, or you know, what, what comes of this uh, in the, in the time uh, after the massacre, um, and and you know, I know that that's a big question, of course. So we don't need to go into all of the intricacies um, because we still have more to discuss. But but what is what is the significance of this moment um, as as history moves forward, um, and then how does it become the sort of uh, memorialized and and you know, place of sort of national recognition in India uh, that it does become. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, it does, it, uh, you know, something like that cannot have a reaction and something as brutal uh, and as significant as that can't have a very strong reaction. And of course there was one on a, just at a practical level. Um, the, because of the curfews, around India at the time. Actually, it took some weeks and months for the news to even spread, spread leak out. Mm. 
they continued, you know, Dyer continued. The, the, again, I referenced that famous photograph of men crawling along the street. That was done in the days after the massacre. So there's no, contri- there's absolutely no contrition from, mm-hmm. from, from them. There's no moment where they go, oh my God, what just happened? They right. continued. And that was just one of them. There were flogging posts uh, set up around the city. The period of martial law is, is, uh, is eclipsed by, by obviously the massacre that had taken place some days earlier. But, but there, are re- there were repercussions and they came much, much later. Um, there were also, and the, the repercussions came after a series of inquiries. So there's the, the very famous Hunter Commission, which, Funnily enough, isn't as much of a whitewash as you would you would expect. Mm. You would literally expect colonial yes. powers to really whitewash this thing. Um, actually, it was a reasonably balanced uh, commission. So there were both, you know, diehard imperialists as well as Indians on that commission, and they 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 split part way through. Yeah. Um, so there's a, both a hunter commission report and there's a minority report written mm. by the Indians, which is incredibly valuable for us because we get a good sense of, of the argument that's going on. Uh, but equally, uh, just on the really on the ground level, you know, you take that kind of imperial bureaucracy to one side, uh, a ground level, um, there was a, a local charitable trust that was... Um, not just established, but helped by the early Congress bigwigs—they weren't called Congress in those days. Right, Lal Nehru, for example, Jawaharlal Nehru's father, and, Jaw- mm. and a very young Jawaharlal Nehru went to Amritsar, and they—they they did this remarkable thing where they went door to door to every single house in Amritsar to find out if anyone had been um, a victim of. The um, they were in the bog and were they a victim of it? So the the testimony from from it's not really testimony. It's like these gigantic Edwardian spreadsheets of yeah. know, names and and precisely what happened. Again, very valuable from our perspective, but also helps demystify um, precisely what took took place and the extent of it. Hmm. Um, because as I said, martial law had kind of enveloped. And, and to some extent erased a lot of the very fresh uh, evidence mm-hmm. that was there. And, and so the Hunter Commissions toward the end of 18, uh, end of 19, sorry, lead to the excoriation of, of Dyer. He's, he, I mean, he, he's given a very soft punishment. He's mm-hmm. basically told to retire and go home back to England. Um, and the, the, the head of, the governor of Punjab, Sir Michael O'Dwyer, mm-hmm. a similar name, uh, the man who was killed by Udham Singh in 1940, he's also essentially, essentially told your career's over. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a much, much more polite manner, he's allowed yeah. to basically stay out, you know, stay out his term, which ends, I think, the next year in any case. Um, and then he retires um, with... Um, frankly, with a lot of dignity, right? I mean, he he, he really didn't. He really wasn't punished for it. 
Um, so there are those kind of practical things, but I think the, the the heart of this is really what does what does the massacre at Amritsar do to Indians and Indian people in the call for for freedom? Well, in, interesting. Interestingly, Jalal Bagh is often referred to as the the first shots of the freedom struggle. I've got a funny feeling in that light and sound show, which we're going to talk about. They. they <laughs> literally re- reference that i'm not sure that that's actually the case but in retrospect it's it's often s- seen as that because mm-hmm. what it did for indians as the news percolated through society was for people to reevaluate their relationship with um uh the government of india the the british government of india and by what, what do I mean by that? For many Indians, like if you take Punjab, for example, um, for many Punjabis, you know, there are fairly benign, uh, fairly benign governance. Mm-hmm. If anything, you know, for many of our families, I'm, um, I'm thinking of Punjabis here, um, uh, Punjab was a pretty exalted place. It was a place where lots of men were recruited into the high status um, Indian army. Mm-hmm. And it was high status. It gave you, you know, pension and a uniform and status and all those sorts of things. Um, it, was a, it was a place that was seen as an important part of the administrative service of, of India. Uh, it had universities and, you know, good trading. So in, in many respects, it was quite, an, quite a benign, if not, positive experience um, under the governance of the British. And interestingly, even as the opposition leaders um, tried to kind of strike a deal for their support during the First World War, all that they wanted was dominion status. You know, the only mm-hmm. thing they were calling for before Jalil Malabar, before the First World War, was dominion status, the same status as, as places like Canada and New Zealand had with Great Britain. They weren't asking right. for independence. But what you have with Jalian Wallabagh is this is the, the the trauma of that, the the impact of that is this is unsustainable for in for many people, a sense that this is unsustainable. No, it wasn't the only event, of course, that did that, but um uh for for a lot of people that was the that was a moment. Um so it's yeah, it's an important part of that freedom narrative although of course none of the victims would have felt that what they were doing in the bug that today was anything to do with the freedom struggle mm, i see <laughs> or, or very little to do with it i mean there, there may have been some you know listening to speeches who thought that they were um striking a blow for great greater um in, independence or autonomy self governance yeah exactly Yes. But but for most of them, they were just, and, and you know, you've just got to read the, the reams and reams of of uh, names and professions of people to realise that that's not what they were there doing. Um, but it, it's very, again, largely through the work of the the early Congress leaders, Motilal Nehru in, in particular, that space, the, the actual Jalil Bagh is... Um, is noted that this this has this killing field this location where indians have been 
slaughtered, where the British have really shown the, the greatest excesses of of their rule, that that should be in perpetuity some kind of memorial. Mm-hmm. And so through public subscription, they buy out, a charitable trust basically buys out uh, that space as early as 1921. Mm. Um, and by 1925, they start laying it out as a memorial garden. And this is just the first of many interventions that go on uh, in that space. Um, and then the, the the thing that you will have seen and be very familiar with, and most people listening to the podcast will be, is the is the sort of giant red stone, uh, uh, red sandstone thing, flame, <laughs> whatever it is, in the middle of the bog, as we would go into it. As I, I remember going in when I was a kid um, with my parents. Uh, that thing, designed by an American architect. Um, commissioned and then installed by Congress government in, in 1961, inaugurated by Jawaharlal Nehru himself, who, who would have been there in 1919 as a very young mm-hmm. um, is the thing that we're, we're probably most familiar with. And then since then, there have been you know they can't stop fiddling about with it. Um, <laughs> and of course, what they've done, what they've done now is just finally out of what motivation no one can really tell. Well, we can all speculate. Um, They've obliterated any sense of what took place there. This day, save a few bullet holes in in a few walls. So until now, there have been, there have been some uh, some right, like you said, the erection of the monument. Um, I believe, if I remember correctly, there's some plaques that kind of memorialize or tell a bit of the story. Uh, there are you know bullet holes that remained in the walls. Um, but it, it I, I would describe it as a place, having been there many times, that. Um, it, it, it still was a, a fairly kind of a humble place in terms of, you know, walking through a narrow alley that probably looked similar to how it looked for a long, long time um, into this open, open space, this green mm. space um, with that, that probably overall looked fairly similar minus a, a few additional monuments and plaques. Uh, and now the the Modi government has a, commissioned a, a massive overhaul of the space, um, and I think the the way that the way that I, I might describe it would be like a I don't know sort of a bizarre kind of a Disneyland kind of feel that they've they've erected uh, in that space now. I'm, can you uh, first, I guess, let's uh, talk about, yeah, what what does this place now look like? What has the the government commissioned, and and uh, what's the transformation uh, look like? Um, yeah, ex- I mean, obviously, neither of us have actually been there. We've seen it on screen. Um, right. Well, and I can't, I can't believe that I'm getting misty eyed and slightly nostalgic about what it looked like 
you know, in the in the year beforehand. I I, I had gone to the last time I was in Amritsar was 2018, and um, even though we were working on a book on the Amritsar massacre, I didn't go into the bar. I sat outside. I I couldn't I couldn't face going inside. They'd erected this statue of Udham Singh outside, which just looked silly and oversized. Doesn't look like him. Doesn't look like him and it's crap. I mean, I can say it now. <laughs> yeah, I never said it before because, it, well, it's it's other, you know, it's, it's how other people want to memorialise things. I say it's not for me to get all snobby. Sure. Myself, but I'm going to say it now. It looks rubbish. <laughs> um, Amrita deserves better. The story deserves better. That, yeah. That's how I would probably frame it. Um, but I couldn't face going into the bug because it... Um, I, I dislike that memorial. It's overbearing and it's it's nationalistic and yes. um, there's, there's literally Indian flags all over it. And it, it, it I just dis, dislike that. I dislike that it had become a picnic spot, mm-hmm. not a moment where you stop and reflect. You should walk through that narrow, narrow, narrow alleyway as you described it, and you should try to listen to those walls mm. you try to just try to put yourself in a place where this is where you're going to now enter a, a hallowed space mm-hmm. Shabbat it's the same reason I've never been to Wagga border mm. I don't, yes. I've never been there I can't, Wagga represents the place where a million two million people were killed yeah yeah where 10 million people were displaced, where cultural heritage was eviscerated on both sides. And yet they've turned it into like a show of, yes. it's like a peacock show where people march up and down and there are literally bleachers where people wave flags and show. I, and I never go because I just think it's crass and disgusting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's the same reason I couldn't couldn't go into Jalianwalabag because it's a picnic spot now. Right. I, I mean, I don't want to deny people a space that that they. I, I really, I know, I under, I, I fully understand how I sound, but um, much of you, you could just as I've taken my kids there in the past, you can, you used to be able to see the expanse of it. You can point out the walls. You can see. Um, the shrine in the middle. Of course, there was the well as well, where people allegedly threw themselves into. Mm. Um, but the, the the original features of of that ground were just about there if you squinted. Um, and there was a small kind of interpretation place, you know, the, the Martyrs Gallery, um, as well. I mean, it changed radically from what it was in 1919. What what has happened now, by all accounts, by the video that we've seen, is that all of that has been... It, it has been turned into a very manicured, carefully right. green, bright, literally bright green. Um, Disney is a really good... A good... Um, Uniform, homogenous, bland uh, place. And then coupling that with a super bombastic kind of light and sound show um, with lasers 
firing at the walls and firing at this 60s memorial and the loud music and the it's just it's so unbelievably crass I, mm. I was desperately and another journalist had asked me you know can you think of another place where this has happened I'm just desperately trying to think you know where else on on this planet has anyone commemorated the the massacre of hundreds of people like this literally literally I couldn't I couldn't think of it and I love myself a a good memorial (laughs) (laughs) you've done much work on world war one as I have you you go to a lot of these um, you go to a lot of these places and you and and they they generally have memorials and I'm not big on war memorials but memorials nonetheless they the great memorials, the Washington Memorial is a great example. It literally lowers you. Sorry, the Washington Memorial for the Vietnam War, apologies. Right, right. Not Washington's memorial. Um, it literally lowers you into the ground. Right. It humbles you as you enter. Um, Jalianwala Bagh did that. The narrow alleyway actually did that. It, it, you, it, there was a sense of trepidation that you were now going to enter hallowed space that's all gone i mean they've mm. they've literally plastered the 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 uh that alleyway with these weird reliefs kind of sculptures of laughing cartoonish yeah people I, I don't know what they're doing are they are they going towards the bug as a <laughs> yeah it's in, odd enjoy or are they is is that them actually screaming and leaving and um the, the, just the faces have been rendered badly. I, it's 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 bad and it's wrong. <laughs> it is, it is, and 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 I think it's. I mean, you touched on how it had already become, and and you know, I I think that it's um, probably it's it's worth worth saying that you know this kind of nationalistic fervor that it. it you know, it did ignite uh, at its time, which you know, it it, it demonstrated in a, in a very stark way to the people of India um, that they should be uh, weary of of this imperial government and that they should question their relationship to it, and and it it helped uh, move forward this independence movement into, uh, you know, eventually um, India becoming its own nation. Um, but, and it has, but it's continually been, it's a political place. I mean, it's a place mm. that, mm. that is um, kind of used as a symbol of nationalism mm. up until now. But this sort of takes it to almost, you know, the, the word fascism is thrown around a lot these days. Mm. But when it applies to the Hindu right in India under Modi's government, uh, there's a lot of, I think that there's a lot of evidence that um, would say that it's not misapplied. One of the quotes, and I I can't remember who it's attributed to, of that I I remember about, uh, then when I think of this is, is, you know, fascism is is like the worship of a history that never was. (laughs) <laughs> um, and, and, 
you know, I feel that way, you know, when I'm looking, say, in my context as an American, you know, there's, you know, of course, the Make America Great Again kind yeah, of movement yeah. and all this kind of stuff. And I want and my country back was our... Was right, our, exactly. Yeah. And and it seems to me that this is this is like that, that sort of tackiness and disnification and and like overwrought uh, kind of celebration of something that should really make us think about our relationship to power in and of itself is, is sort of, and, and our, our questioning of, of the powers that govern us and, and our solidarity with each other as human beings um, is sort of recast as this, this, Oh, we are this nation, uh, and you know we defeated those bad rulers, and now we are are rulers of ourselves, and and uh, uh, you know it, it's just about sort of unquestioning, kind of blind um, deference to this this sort of myth, this national myth. Um, uh, it, it seems like it's taken a, it's it's like we've gone from sort of yes, a, a nationalistic kind of curated history and, and a political space into this sort of like a symbol to me of, of a kind of fascism that is mythologizing completely uh, any relationship to history and, and kind of just making a spectacle uh, for people to behold and to be attached to. Uh, I don't, there's not really much of a question there, but well, that's just a, an observation. And, and I, I think it's a very fine, obs, I think it's a very fine observation. I, I always think that Indian, all Indian history at the moment, or for the longest time, has been told through a lens of independence, which is why, all of it, it's always done through a lens of independence, which is why you get, and, and it's not just independence from British, of course, it's independence from the Mughals before that. Right, right. And you get this overplay of, um, uh, you know, Tipu Sultan and and like Maharatha guy, I can't remember his name. Um, right, right. <laughs> but equally, World War Two, you know, two and a half million Indians go to World War, go to war in World War Two, for good or bad. Um, yeah. But that's not taught. The only thing that's taught is Subhash Chandra Bose and the Indian National Army. Right. And they have this very skewed view of of. Um, of history, but then the politicization of it, which is uh, what you mentioned, I think is absolutely, I think you're absolutely spot on. You, my favorite um, politicization story is um, actually relates to Jallianwala Bagh. It's uh, so it's to do with Udham Singh. So Udham Singh obviously shot Sir Michael A. Dwyer, the governor of Punjab, in 1940, uh, an act that was condemned by Congress leaders because mm. it was seen as an act of violence in on British soil. So condemned at the time by the Nehru's. Um, he's then hanged and buried in London. And then in this, I might get my date slightly wrong. I'm going to say 70s. Um, Indira Gandhi brings back his body in this great show. Mm. This great political show. This is not to do with Odham Singh. It's got nothing to do with her. It's got everything to do with her and her party. His body is literally literally paraded around India. It goes up wow. to the club, it goes all over the place. It's literally paraded. It's in a coffin, obviously, but 
you know, nonetheless, yeah. it's it's a crass, disgusting um, act. He he was then cremated, but you can't leave it there. Not in this, <laughs> yeah. Not, not in this world of crass Indian politics. The, the the ashes were then divided into seven parts, into seven urns. One urn was left in Sunam, his village. One was taken to Hardwar. One was taken to Rosa Sharif. One was taken to, I don't know where the other one, the six, maybe Amritsar or something. Um, one is, is held in the Ministry of the Interior, which did all the paperwork. Mm. Um, one was taken to, uh, one is lost for sure, 100% one is lost. We don't know where that one is. Hmm. Um, one is in, or was in Jallianwalabagh in that martyr's gallery, although in the three, four times I've been there, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's not there. Hmm. Um, so even, <laughs> even Udham Singh, you know, the man that they lionize at the beginning, at the, at the entrance now, uh, they play these disgusting yeah. political games. And, and what we've seen this year, of course, is just a, um it's just an extension uh is an extension of that i i live in hope that it's a it's it's part of the kind of cultural maturation of of india that it needs to kind of get through this um, right unfortunately there's all this damage that happens uh, well i think it's worth mentioning too that the the contractors that built this uh and were i don't remember the sum uh right now off the top of my head but uh, I believe it's, I mean, it's crores of rupees mm, yeah. uh, were paid to do this are also uh, seem to have, you know, close ties and friendships with the Modi family. Uh, and I think that's worth mentioning as well. Yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd expect if there wasn't um, financial corruption <laughs> in a large, in a large undertaking in India, you'd be we'd probably need a podcast on that wouldn't we yeah right yeah right um, but then there's also i think the <laughs> the other point you made which i think is right you know you, you use the word disney disnification it's the dumbing down yeah of history which now is completed in in jillianwala bag but um and i don't know if you've been back to if you've been in amritsar since 2018 when they've when they've um They've taken that main, they've taken, it's not main, but the, the space between essentially Jalilwalabagh and the Darbar Saab, and they've turned it into this like main street, Disneyland style yes. street boulevard. I haven't, but I've seen pictures and it's a similar feeling. It, it, it absolutely is, you know, from famously from the McDonald's to the Darbar Saab. Yeah. Cobbled streets. Um, Victorian style cast iron lampposts, um, obviously uniform, completely uniformed shop fronts, and they just ploughed this straight line between between the two. These very selfie friendly, right? Statues of grinning Bhangra dancers spotted are along the way. I mean, it's horrific. Yeah, and it's yeah. and it is dumb. And I predict they will come to regret this. Well, I think that the, you know, and we talked about this before we recorded, I think that um, the, you said that maybe the only good thing to come out of all of this is the universal condemnation um, that we're seeing 
definitely online. I don't know where else where else we're seeing it, but uh, unfortunately, you know, in the case of Harmander Saib, in the case of Jalian Balabag, these you know, history has effectively been erased and sort of plastered over with, uh, with, with, I keep saying it, but like a Disney-like uh, facade. Um, I mean, do you, you know, what do you see, uh, you know, what, 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 you know, where, where do we go from here as people who do care about history and who do want to see some, see this, this, uh, real history preserved and these these kind the kind of true stories told i mean where do we go from here and 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 you know what what is there anything to be done um it's it's bleak isn't it yeah i i um my friend kim wagner who's um a professor at, at queen mary's and has written more than just written, I mean, he's researched the the story of Jalil Bagh and, and written it in um, his book Amritsar, nineteen nineteen. Says said the other day on on a bit of press, there's been almost more coverage of this event, the revamping of the site, than yeah. there was in the actual uh, hundred year um, anniversary, right? And in a sense, that's you know that does draw people back to a moment in history and a moment of learning, and I hope that people do that. And you would be very well served to pick up Kim's incredibly uh, well researched but very readable as well mm-hmm. as very beautiful history of Julian Wallabag and the context within which that sits. Um, it is uh, one of the best books. On there, and you'll you'll find yourself turning the page and go, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was dragged to the bug in the eighties with my parents, da, 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 but I did not know that. I didn't. Mm. And he's done this just extraordinary job of uncovering the story. Accompanying that is is our own book, is mine and Palm's book, which Kim wrote the intro to. Um, so whereas Kim is very very strong on narrative and has a few images, we've kind of inverted it. And ours is very strong on the images and the eyewitness accounts. And then there's an introductory essay at the front of it. But the two, two books work in parallel. And if this moment, you know, has people reaching for those books um, in your public library or online, <laughs> then, you know, there is some good to come uh, to come from that. I'm, I was impressed. I was... <laughs> impressed in the sea of <laughs> of depression that surrounded this but i was impressed by the almost universal condemnation of this even from even from the indian press which has been yeah. um whether it's been kowtowed or whether it's pro modi they um in in very direct language have have condemned um the extent and quality of this uh, renovation and I think if there is and, and that and that noise has been international and even on Twitter where there are you know all manner of people um I think it's been fairly universal and if, if the noise does one thing which is to protect the next 
great monument or place in India from undergoing such a kind of crass um, <laughs> populist uh, revamp, um, political revamp, then I think, you know, maybe that's the the last martyr of, of the Jallianwala Bagh, the, you know, that it had to give itself in order to protect other monuments uh, from the same kind of destruction. Well, we can only hope. Um, but yes, let's all uh, dig deeper and learn more about this history and uh, use our voices as much as we can to, uh, to pile on to that. This is the one internet dog pile that I, I absolutely endorse. Uh, and uh, just want to thank you so much, uh, Aman, for, for walking us through this history uh, and, and sharing with us about this important place and time. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Not at all, Shabba. Thank you very much for the invitation and lovely to speak to you again. Thank you once again to Amandeep Singh Madra for that excellent conversation on the history and context of Jallianwala Bagh and its massacre and uh, the preceding years and, of course, this most uh, unfortunate recent renovation. Uh, please join us every other Tuesday. We'll be here having more uh, discussions with our content creators and journalists. We uh, love to have you and we always want to hear from you. I also want to encourage you to uh, rate the podcast and uh, leave a review on iTunes. That always helps us uh, get discovered by new listeners. And also please subscribe to Boz News uh, and consider becoming a supporting member. It is with your uh, donations, your uh, giving that we are able to uh, maintain this platform. So we are really grateful for you listening once again, and we hope you continue to join us every other week. And we'll see you next time.